Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the P3 Podcast. Fantastic guest today. Not just somebody that I've crossed paths with within the sporting sector, but it's amazing what he's achieved within the business sector, and we're going to really sort of hopefully bring that rich experience to life today. Without further ado, Phil Jones, Managing Director of Brother UK and MBE, don't you know? How are you, Phil? Hello, Phil. Yeah, I'm absolutely superb. Thank you. Thanks for having me on today. It's a real privilege. No, I really appreciate your time. I know, um, especially end of your closeout, everyone's sort of trying to get their bits done, but I'm sure it's not as manic at Brother as it is at some companies, because it does seem that you have a lot of your processes and people nailed down there. It seems like everybody's pulling together. Yeah, I think for all organisations, really, your metal's been tested over the last eight months, Phil. It really has. And I think sometimes we know through life itself that adversity really shows us in the mirror who we really are. And one thing that I've been super delighted about is during the last sort of eight to nine months where we really have been tested to the extreme. The character of our company, the character of the people that are here, combined with excellent process, of course, has meant that we're here, we're solid and we're in a good position, at least, to move into 2021. And let's dig a little bit deeper into that, Phil, if we get straight into it. So I think there's two aspects of this that maybe some organisations have struggled. It's not just about having that collegiate approach so your clients and your customers are happy, but it's all about looking after your staff too, isn't it? Because if you look after your staff, then that resonates in everything they do with your clients. A hundred percent. It's where I've always started with running the company here. I mean, I've been with Brothers since 1994. I joined as a fact salesman, Phil, and I never had any expectation or belief, to be fair, that I would have the skills or the competencies or the capability to run this company. I generally lacked in confidence and lacked in everything, frankly. You know, you expected people that had been to Oxford and got a degree and done some amazing apprenticeship at somewhere like Deloitte, you know, or been taken on as an intern. So I got here after working my way up the ladder. It was probably one of the proudest moments of my life in 2013 when I walked through the door as the managing director and I couldn't believe it. I had to pinch myself. I think if you're ever presented with that opportunity yourself to lead a large organisation of any kind, whether it be sporting or commercial, what you've got to determine is, is, well, who do I want to be as the leader? What do I want this organisation to be? What are the hidden characteristics of this culture that I want to bring to the fore and cement in and formalise? And one of the things that I thought during that process was I really wanted us to be a compassionate company. We're a technology company, Phil, at the end of the day. We make computer printers and labelling devices. It's not very sexy. It's very functional, very utility orientated. But I want the people that work here to really feel like they're part of something and that they're known as individuals and that I know them all as individuals, which I do. We've got just over 180 people here. And I know everybody and I know what makes them tick. I know what their backgrounds are. I know their stories and their life stories. And what that allows me to do is to have this sort of unique, compassionate approach to really understand what's really going on, not only professionally in my organisation, but emotionally too. Because you know better than anybody that actually once you get to grips with understanding what's going on emotionally with somebody, it can really impact performance. And what do we want in a professional workplace? We want high levels of performance, high levels of output, this ability to execute against our strategy, all that stuff. You'll get that once you genuinely understand your people. Yeah, and I do see that as a gap with a lot of organizations. I think that a lot of MDs and CEOs, of course, they're there to serve the board and hit the targets, but they have that disconnect of looking further down the hierarchy or across the hierarchy, whichever way your hierarchy looks. 
but there is a disconnect and they see that as the managers and the other leaders jobs it's not mine and i think everybody then has that level of conversation so nobody connects it a hundred percent phil over the years i've had that many other ceos in my office here at brother uk that see what we're doing and they just expect some sort of magic formula some sort of strategy that they can take in a bound document to give to their management team and say, look, this is what they do. You go do it, make a culture like ours. But like anything, Phil, it's a bit like baking a cake, isn't it? Is that we can all have the same ingredients, but one person just happens to make a better job of it than another. One's an amazing cake and one's a complete flop. And in my experience, the difference is, is how the leader engages in that process, how emotionally aware they are, how they understand how the emotion of business at any one time, having situational awareness as to what's really going on at any time outside of the veneer of what's going on that you can see. Believe me, over the past seven years, what I've really learned is, is that the flow of life just interrupt your workplace so much and create a workplace which can be, I guess, dysfunctional at times. So one saying that came into my mind when I was doing a talk in front of some business leaders a few years back, Phil, was that we just won the Best Investors in People Platinum Award. So of all the platinum investors in people that existed in the UK at the time, we won the award for the best of the best. I can remember doing the press release, etc. And one of the things that I thought might give a wrong impression that you're perfect as a result of winning that award. And I'm like, no, we're far from it. Because what I thought was all companies are dysfunctional. Successful companies simply manage their dysfunction more successfully. So dysfunction is really about human performance, right? So it's not really about process failure. It's about human dysfunction. And when you realize what comes through your door every day, each morning we all walk into our front door here at Brother and we may have slept poorly, been up all night with the kids, be worried about things that are going on financially. We could have parents that are terminal illnesses. All this stuff is going on in front of your eyes every single day in your company culture if only you take the time to ask. And when you ask and when you make the environment safe enough for people to reveal those things to you, then you can really begin to unlock your company performance. In my experience, you become far more resilient over the long term because people then build trust with you in your safe environment and they will give you their discretionary effort, Phil. And when you get their discretionary effort, then magical things begin to happen in your organization. And then other people peer in and say, how do you do that? We want to do that. And it's kind of like, well, build it. Put care into your culture. Put time into your diary as the leader to have meaningful conversations with people, which are just not about your number, your quarterly performance or objectives, but actually at a deep level, how are you? What's going on with you? What's the number one issue on your desk? And what's the number one issue in your life? Get to grips with that. And some of those things are formal ways of getting to me, Phil, and others using the background jungle drums, et cetera, et cetera, to deliver me the insights that I need to have the understanding of the internal emotional temperature of our company at any one time. It's so important that my mind was all over the place when you were chatting there because I was joining some dots with some of the clients we have where sometimes we get brought in by the CEO or the MD and they'll say, right, you're a consultancy firm. What we want you to do is come and do some training and sort out that department. And the first question we ask is, okay, what's your role in that? And a lot of them are not willing to look in the mirror. And I think you've got to be authentic. You've got to want to do, you've got to care. Otherwise, if it comes across a little bit false, then you actually drive disengagement. Is that something maybe you've experienced with some of your peers in the past? Oh, Phil, yes. I mean, I've got a personal story I can tell you, and it's about me. 
it was probably in the 2000s. So obviously I said I joined in 94 and I kind of was working my way up. And I got to the point where I was appointed the sales director of the company. And it was the first time that I'd ever sort of been a leader of teams. So I had team managers with teams and I was now leading the team of teams, if you see what I mean. And I'd only ever really led a little team. Now I'm a leader of team of teams and man, I was out my depth totally. And I had this chance conversation with, at the time, a QVC presenter whose husband happened to be a sports psychologist. And he was looking to try and bring his sports psychology methodology into a business environment. I was on a call to her because when people were on QVC, you'd ring into the studio and sort of say, how many have you sold this day? And she'd tell you and you'd talk more about the print speed and we sold more. And after that conversation's finished, she said, listen, my husband's here. Can he have a quick word with you? Because he wants to talk about this psychology. So I thought, all right then. So he came on the line. He explained what he did and he said, look, I'm really looking for somebody to work with in a business environment to try and test my process. So I said, well, okay. I felt completely out my depth at the time. I was willing to try anything. So he came to meet me. I was super impressed by him, but I said exactly what you said. I said, look, the reason you're here is I need them over there, not me, them to be a high performing team. I want them all to be brilliant. I've got all these objectives to meet, all these sales numbers to meet. And he said, yeah, yeah, definitely we can achieve that. But it all starts with you. So we're going to have to do at least three months one-to-one with each other. And then once I get you fixed and in a position to lead, then we'll go away and we'll work with those other teams. And from that point, Phil, I went through maybe nearly 100 days worth of really intense breaking down rebuild of self. Mm. And it was one of the most emotionally intense periods of my life. You charge with asking some of the most difficult questions of yourself. Why do you operate like that? Why do you respond like that? Why do you think like that? Where do you think your self-image has come from? It's brutal. But of course, I had a psychologist with me, you know, who would take me through that process. And in those very deep reflections, you then go out and you start having conversations to calibrate who you think you are versus how people experience you. And that was brutal because what I then realized was my perception that I was some sort of really brilliant guy, sales leader, all this sort of stuff. When calibrated with a lot of people outside of my direct sales environments, They just thought I was in it for myself, that I was not really a people person. I just saw people as assets and resources to get things done. And I tended to overlook people. And that was a really horrible calibration moment for me because I realized that it's not really me. That's not who I was. And we worked over some time to get me to this place where actually I could just be myself, whereas actually what I was being was a sort of hyped up, mask-wearing, driven sales director that just felt he needed to act like this in the workplace because it kind of got me what I want in terms of sales results. But actually what I began to realize was it was probably one of the major things holding me back from ever going up the ladder again. I was almost going to hit a glass ceiling if I carried on. I'd only ever be a sales director and nothing more, Phil. Once I got to that stage, a few years in, I thought, you know what, maybe I might better lead this company. I started to get more belief. But I realized the only person and the only thing holding back that happening was me, my belief systems, my approach towards people. And I had to work very, very hard to find who I was to deliver that authentic self to others. And then I think once you have mastery of self, then you're in a fairly good position to be far more sympathetic in understanding others. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you flick that switch, isn't it? And I think that people believe that their behaviors that have gotten success in what they're achieving now when ready to go into the next level, they think the same behaviors is what's required because that's what they've been rewarded for. Well, actually, your behaviors need to pivot now because there's a different expectation of you. 
Does that resonate with you too? Oh, Phil, totally. Now I go and I talk to groups of young aspirational managers about how to climb the ladder and how to get to the top. And really, I just say that from my point of view, the accelerants that are going to get you there are two, mastery of subject matter and mastery of self. End of. Yeah. So be very good at what you do, whatever job we do, whatever role you have, really work to be really, really good at it. Learn about it a lot work across your organization, understand where it fits in, all that stuff. That's what I mean about mastery of subject matter. If you're trying to get on, read books about the future of where you want to be. Read books about the next phase, what it means to be a sales leader or a managing director, that kind of stuff. And the mastery of self is absolutely having an in-depth understanding of absolutely everything that makes you tick. Once you get to that point, you get this individual congruency where you are really centered. And then people see that and they go, how did you get centered like that? Because you seem to be really stable. You don't go off the handle all the time. You come across as very sensible, if you see what I mean. And I'm in a Japanese culture and therefore being a safe pair of hands is vitally important. And they really value that very, very highly. So I needed to probably accentuate that in my own environment. But I think in any leadership environment, however old you are, and I'm not just talking about the grey-haired, silver-haired, I'm talking in your early 20s, work on your self-development. I mean, really work on it. Have somebody mentor you, read loads of books, try and understand how you work and what makes you tick. And then once you get that in-depth understanding, that switch that goes off really allows you to have better conversations with other people. Yeah, including yourself. When we sort of started doing self-development and personal development, self-awareness 20 years ago now, I think that having some people to support you is really, really important though. Because I think once you open that door, it does open up a different thought pattern and therefore different language happens, different behavior happens. And you've got to be able to verbalize that to people that may be in the same space or on the same journey. We had a term, we used to call it chatsies. It's that deeper conversation and reflecting back now, especially with men. I think when we used to say, I fancy a chatsy, it was actually, I want to talk to you. It was almost as a bloke who were dropping our guard of going, look, I'm ready to talk now. And it was with somebody either you respect or was on that journey with you. Did you have somebody like that outside of the psychologist you work with? Yeah, I think once you get into this sort of space of perhaps having a deeper level of self-awareness, you find other people like that quite easily because you know from a conversation that you might put a few testers out, whether somebody responds to that and then you go, okay, so you're there, aren't you? I know you're in that space too. And it's surprising how deep your conversation can go very, very quickly. So I think that equipped with this new capability, what I found myself doing was immediately being drawn to other people that maybe had the same language patterns, same thought processes, or following people on Twitter or social media. You just thought, they seem to be in the same space as me. I really like what they're saying. You're a good example of that, Phil. You just know people that are at the same place. So I think you tend to find yourself and surround yourself with those people, not because it's an echo chamber, but simply because it actually becomes a very supportive and constructive space where you can say things. And if you are having a bad day, you can ring one of your mates up and just sort of go, look, mate, I am really just having a funny day today. You've got 10 minutes and they go, yeah, go on. What you got to say? Yeah. Do you feel better now? You go, I do actually. Yeah. (laughs) They might not even give you any advice, Phil, but (laughs) I've got a platform to sort of just have a bit of a spout off. And I do that for other people too. So I think this is, you know, vitally important. And I think it's very difficult sometimes for men, much more difficult for men. I have a small leadership framework that I've developed, Phil, called correlative leadership. And there's four pillars in that, physical, emotional, digital, and spiritual. 
this is correlative leadership. So these are the skills I believe that modern day leaders need. Physical is only designing great workspaces, but actually being in good shape, but also having an understanding of neuroscience, particularly, which obviously is more of a physical study. So understanding the role of dopamine, cortisol, all of these things in your workplace is vitally important now. So you can understand human performance. So the emotional side is obviously standard EQ, emotional regulation, all that stuff. The digital side is that basically you need to be much more digitally capable running any business nowadays. And then the spiritual side is the one, if I'm speaking at a conference, is when you just see every man in the room push back in their chair and go, he just said it. (laughs) But I can tell you this, man or woman, when you start reaching certain pivotal points in your life, let's say you have a life-changing experience, you recover from perhaps cancer, or for some people it's their 50th birthday film. They get a bit lost. They don't know what the world's all about, or they've gone through a divorce or something. If they're one of your high-performing people, let's say, you need to be able to have a conversation with that individual about what's going on. And that's where I think I sort of drift into the spiritual side, which is actually, look, you're not yourself. What's going on? And someone needs to be able to say to you, I'm just really struggling. I'm turning 50. I don't know who I am anymore. I feel a bit lost. I feel I've got no purpose anymore. It sounds weird, doesn't that feel when you go, no, I get it. Okay, right. How do we get you recentered, reset, and feeling like you've got momentum again? And that is quite a deep conversation, Phil. And in my experience, if you can have those deep conversations with people like that, then they will give you so much back over the years. They will go, you know, in my big moment of need, you were there, and that chat changed everything for me. That's a level of performance which is very sometimes difficult to normally untap. Yeah, and I think one of the themes we've been working on, certainly the last 12 months, if not the last 24 months, and definitely since COVID hit, was just the theme of being human. And what we mean by that as a leader and a manager is taking the time to have that conversation, to listen to what they're saying, ask some good questions, because people need to know that they matter and that they care, and that you care as a leader and as a manager. And that can be one of the biggest performance enhancers, just to get somebody's engagement that I matter and that manager really gets me. When you're talking at that level of, right, I noticed on that Zoom call the other day, which we're always on at the minute, that that Zoom call, you were a bit quiet or your body language or your facial expression wasn't quite right. And then taking the time to pick the phone up going, you're right, I just noticed you're a bit quiet on that call. And if everything is okay, then that's okay too. But the fact that you've made that gesture shows that you care. It's unbelievable rather than right onto the next meeting, onto the next meeting, onto the next meeting, onto the next meeting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a huge sort of yellow flag up at the moment, I think, about this hybrid working environment or for many just purely remote. And it's exactly that, Phil, is that normally in my place, I'm wandering around and I can just tell from people from seeing them whether I need to wander over and have a little chat. How are you? You know, you don't look yourself and nip down to mine and come on, we'll have a cup of coffee and a natter about just things. And you get somebody in and you start on one thing with a view to getting them to something else. What's really going on? The issue behind the issue. That is becoming very difficult in this remote environment that we're in because it's very easy for people to hide, whether it be cameras off or putting a mask on, because the meetings become very transactional, haven't they? It's a 30-minute burst. We're on at 10, we're finished by 10.30 because we're all off to other calls. So we're not turning up five minutes early for the meeting and having a little natter and picking up those visual clues and non-verbal stuff. Everything is just on, get the job done, finish the job, end the call, go to next. And there's something being lost in that. There's conversation being lost, quality conversation being lost. So you have to be super attentive. Now I'm much more attentive on camera, although it takes much more concentration, to try and read people. What's really going on there? Is somebody being quieter than normal? Has somebody turned their camera off when they don't normally? 
what clues can I look for in somebody to know that they're not the self? And it's very easy to just end the call and jump on for a quick five minutes afterwards and say to someone, look, a bit concerned about you today. You don't look yourself. You know, how are you? What's really going on? And people appreciate that a lot. So in these very busy schedules that we've all got, particularly as leaders of businesses, you've got to schedule a bit of that time too. And don't forget that part of your job of that leadership role is that caring role that should form part of your competencies as a person who is leading to check in on those other people and to have those deeper conversations. You've sparked a memory there, Phil, and I might have got this wrong. So when we first met nearly two years ago now, believe it or not, out in sunny Calpe on our bikes, which was many moons ago, if you remember. If I remember, we were in an Irish bar, we had a pint of Guinness, and we were chatting away about organizational development, people, human performance. And we got into that deeper conversation very, very quickly, because obviously we were speaking the same language. But if I remember rightly, you were saying that you factor into your diary time for people. The typical MD and CEO that I work alongside, they are back-to-back meetings, to the point where there's no gaps in between meetings for them to do the actions from the meetings. And we obviously work them to develop that. Did I remember that correctly, that you actually factor yeah. time in? So there's people time, there's my personal development time, there's my well-being time, there's my fitness time, as well as my core tasks. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. And when I have those CEOs here saying, oh, how do I do it? And it's like, well, a lot of it also starts with your diary. A couple of tips then, if it's helpful at all for the listeners or an insight would be, I have a very broad framework that I use called Out On In which in normal times would mean a third of my time out the business, third of my time on the business, third of my time in the business. So the out is learning, growing, conferences, exhibitions, customers, growing knowledge, increasing knowledge. The on is bringing all of that back and understanding how that then will impact our strategy. So it could be that I've gone out, seen a new trend. I come back, I look at then our strategy and say, I've seen a new trend, which says the business might go over there. So let's adjust our strategy to get our direction of travel going more over there. Then the in bit is where you then have to go and sort of win the hearts and minds, the wham moment, and talk to people and say, look, I'm doing this, we're doing that. Do you understand why we're doing that? We're making this corrective action. How are you? And then pick up all of the cultural narrative that goes on either behind a change or understanding what's changing you because there might be objections below the surface or there could be hidden emotional issues going on which might affect your ability to deliver something in a certain timescale. So somebody who's very valuable might suddenly going to be off because they're having treatment for a major illness, which is unexpected. You've got to know all of that sort of stuff. So that's something that I've always done. And the second component to that, and this might sound sort of really old fashioned, and of course it's going to sound like that, particularly as I'm a printer company, but I horizon my diary for 12 to 20 weeks at a time. I run a complete digital diary, Phil, you know, it's phones and everything. But actually every couple of weeks I get to the office I get my diary out horizoned for months in advance and I zoom out of my diary completely, take a helicopter view. Where am I? What am I doing? Where am I peaking in terms of demands on me? Where's my rhythm of my following months? Where do I need to repair and recover? How am I prioritizing free time in my office? So I can see I've got three days of back-to-back meetings. Right, that day and that day, no meetings. They are my wandering about days. That's a day I'm going to work from home and maybe recharge my own batteries. That day is I'm going to be in the office and I'm going to ask for these conversations to take place. So it all starts with the processes that you put behind the scenes to give value and meaning to these conversations. Because if you don't give them the value and the meaning, then they don't have that currency. And if they don't have the currency, you're not going to get any sort of return on investment from them in the long term. 
So the clue to unlocking culture is starting with a process like that, where the leader is available to people and can show people in their eyes that they care and that I know you and I care about you and what's going on with you. Then it all begins to start. Comes together. When you have these conversations with the visiting CEOs that I can imagine they've seen you up on stage giving one of your great talks and they say, right, I need to come and have a visit and see what you're doing. What's the strangest response you've got, even when you're explaining how you run your diary like that? Well, I can remember once, Phil, I went and did a talk down in London. It was to 200 CEOs and I was asked to go down and talk about emotional leadership. And oh my God, that was one of the hardest gigs I have ever done because these were all kind of old school they just didn't get this idea. What their idea of performance was, grind people as hard as you can, pay them as much as you can, burn them out, replace them. Yeah. For all of these companies, part of their issue was actually talent retention. So I was coming to this conference to talk about finding and retaining talent, and they all had a problem with retaining talent. And it was kind of like, guys, am I the only person in the room that sort of <laughs> doesn't get this? That hiring, firing, and burning people out, no wonder you've got a retention issue. And maybe this might all begin with us and how we all spend our time and how we care for our companies. And my God, that Q&A was hard work, Phil. You know, the hands were going up. Well, what's the return on investment on all of this? And it's not for us to do. That's for HR to do and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, well, Just don't get it. guys, I'm telling you, there is a stick shift in the way companies and what people want from companies is work. I'm going back over 10 years now, Phil, by the way. There's a change in the way that companies are working. And now people want much more from their company. They want to feel part of something. And that all begins with us as leaders. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Let's just say if you're a bit more emotionally aware on such issues, if somebody isn't, it's very difficult to suddenly make somebody emotionally aware and sensitive if they don't perceive they need to be. It's really tough. You go, you need to be a little bit more emotionally aware. You need to ask more questions. You need to listen more. It's like, well, I've got no time. I'm trying to do this and make a P&L work. And I'm like, yeah, no. So this is why you've got this problem. And the only way this is ever going to fix is actually if you look inside. So if you look inside self, you'll begin to find some of these answers. And for many people, they find that incredibly difficult, Phil, because let's be honest about it. To ask the most challenging questions about self and self-performance, let's say outside of a sporting environment where there might be much more transparency on such things, in a professional corporate environment, that is not really part of the manual, is it? Or hasn't been part of the manual for the last maybe 10 to 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But everything has changed now. Everything has changed. And if you want the best people, if you want to keep the best people, then you have got to be a much more binding culture with more compassion and more care. And if you want that, then you simply have to do the work yourself. And you're going to have to ask some of those hard questions of yourself as the leader. And the answers may surface some really uncomfortable truths really uncomfortable and it's going to make you squirm and it's going to make you question yourself. But if you can go through that process in a safe environment, coached by somebody or mentored so that you've got that safety with you, it will be without doubt one of the most rewarding processes that you will go through as a human being. And once you've done that, you will be a much higher performer in your workplace and your workplace will naturally follow you. So I would encourage anybody, even if you're in your 40s or your 50s or you think it's too late, it's not. You can start tomorrow. 
let this conversation be a trigger for you to say, you know what, I'm going to maybe have a go at that because actually once you find congruency, and this is such a key word in my language nowadays, this ability to know when you're not in the flow, if you see what I mean. So if you're not at your best, then you're congruent, flowing when everything's brilliant, life seems to be working for you in the flow. By default, you know when you're not in the flow because you're not that. So you're sort of incongruent. Then you've got to understand, well, why am I incongruent? And then you've got to have very clear vision, mission, values, and principles in your life. They've got to be explicit and clear and open to audit. And then you can audit yourself as to why you're incongruent. So it's like a massive flywheel, Phil. And once you unlock that, you get your own performance at a really high level and you then get the performance of others following you. Yeah, 100%. And so much resonated. I mean, I can imagine that was really hard gig for sure, especially at that time. And it sparked a couple of thoughts just to share some stories, really, I suppose, that one of our clients, the C-suite, were always based on the top floor, which is fine, to be honest with you. That's cool. But they were refurbing it. And you had to have a special password or special lift to get to the top suite. So none of the C-suite were approachable or accessible. And when they refurbed it, they laid out a red carpet off the back end of the lift. So it came out of the lift straight into the PA's office, if I remember rightly. You weren't allowed to walk on the red carpet either, unless you're a member of the C-suite. So in terms oh of... God. I know, imagine, imagine that. So imagine putting up barriers and saying, well, we're above you. You can't do this. You can't do that. It's incredible, isn't it? So the thought pattern there, though, is the people that were in the audience view that day. And sometimes the conversations I have with those types are, where do you get your leadership style from? It's a learned behavior. It's not something that always comes naturally. And it's normally a mixture of all their previous leaders and managers. And some of the traits that they're exhibiting are the ones that they didn't like in their previous leader, but they don't know any other way of doing it, of behaving that way. And when you ask the deeper question of, well, how did you feel when you were led that way? Oh, I hated it. I was stressed. Yeah. I was burnt out. So, right, well, what else can we do? Because there are other ways. Those conversations are so important to unlock that, aren't they? Yeah, Phil. And sometimes if I think about my own experience, I'm ever so grateful that I got here maybe the hard way. I don't know. I stepped on every single rung of my ladder, working in the pubs at 17. I've stacked biscuits in Waitrose. I've delivered milk on milk rounds. I've been a salesman, sales manager. I've done every job in this company almost, you know, marketing, everything. And I think along the way, I also experienced what it feels like to be badly managed and badly led. And I looked at all of those things. And during that process of reflection, you get to that point of going, what didn't work for you? And what didn't get the best out of you when you were being led? And it's like, well, this or being ignored or someone not even having the natural courtesy to say good morning to me or ask how my day was or blank me or not know my name and things like that. And it's like, yep, get all of that. I've been there. And so it's kind of like when you get here, you should be determined enough to say, well, I shouldn't be that because that is everything that never got the best from me. And I think nowadays, all sorts of high performance is all about finding at a personal level what it is that motivates an individual. And it's all different, right? Some are extrinsic, some are intrinsic, some are trying to please the parents. We all want different things and we're all motivated differently. So you've got to find that personal reason why somebody would be motivated to work for you. And when people didn't do that for me, they probably didn't get my discretionary effort. They got enough. Whereas actually, I think every company now is wanting people to have a really healthy work-life balance and good well-being. So in the sort of, let's say, 40 hours that I've got you, if I can make those 40 hours allow you to be really brilliant and feel like you're coming into a place where you're valued, ace, I don't need any more from you. This place gets locked up at 6.30 every night for everybody goes home, so do I. I don't come in till nine o'clock of the morning. I'm at Costa at half past seven around the corner, but I don't come through this building yeah. door until nine. Why? I'm sending a message to people. That's actually what's going on. 
I wander in at nine and I go home at half past six. And so does everybody else. When I'm here, I'm wanting to do my best work and that's what I want for you. So it's creating that environment, that field of play, that ultimately will get you the results that you need. Yeah, and then everything you're saying there is about congruence again, isn't it? It's about not just saying what you want to happen, but also following that through. Because I think the strong message you're sending there is, you've got kids, you want to take them to school, do the school run. It's really, really important. You need to nip home early to go and get the kids from school and do a little bit of work earlier. Great, let's do that. That's really, really important time and very stressful for a lot of working parents at the moment. So I completely see your message there. And I think particularly through COVID, Phil, the one thing I did very early with people was gather the whole company on a Teams call and just say to everyone, look, I kind of get this. And if you've got your kids at home, you're not used to working in a home environment because you normally came to an office. So we've got people in our own company that have worked with me for 20 years have never worked from home before they always came to the office for so suddenly to be at the kitchen table in a family environment with young kids that are having to homeschool with all the stresses and strains of then trying to and i was like just do what you can yeah just do what you can we feel what's going on here we understand it do not load yourself up with the pressure that you think i'm going to be auditing your working day right now do what you can and yeah. we're going to be happy with that and that was like a massive release valve got turned that was very satisfying for me because I received so many emails afterwards, Phil, from our people to just sort of say, thank you so much for saying that because you know what? We were stressing a little bit at home because we're sometimes doing calls and we've got kid on one knee or you're pushing the dog out the camera or you know, everything's going on, isn't it? And I just think if you're in a business that then says, oh yeah, and what we want to do is put in keyboard strike software so we can measure every keystroke between nine and six to make sure you're doing your work, then you are absolutely missing the sentiment of the moment and your people will leave you as a result. So I think these are the really big moments when you stand up and you cement your leadership, you cement your culture, and you tell people, this is how it is. And then they believe it. Then the words and the evidence match. Yeah. And when the words and the evidence match, then people will build trust with you. And for many company cultures, they go wrong because the words and the evidence or experience are totally mismatched. What I liked about your message there, especially the key message when everybody was working from home was you've identified the fact that you've got a fantastic culture and working environment. And I can only imagine how good your conversations are with your senior leadership team and therefore the managers further down. When you have a culture like that, your discretionary effort, as we're talking about here, is normally through the roof. They'll always go above and beyond. But also their conscientiousness to doing the right thing at the right time is really high. And then when they can't do that, they feel really bad and guilty and it causes stress because they want to do the right thing. And the fact that you've then gone, this is different now, this is a different time, it's okay. I trust you is your message you said to them there. Do you can, I trust you. That is such a powerful message. Yeah, and again, this is all about situational awareness, Phil, isn't it? You're back to that moment of, right, well, where am I right now? Where are we right now? What is the external environment that we're operating in? How does that impact me internally? Therefore, how do I calibrate the sensitivity of this message or this communication? So even during the entire COVID period, we would send an email out to our people each day to give them a sense of expectation that the company's communicating with them every day. And I had a back channel coming into me from HR, Phil, of all of the issues that people were ringing HR about or concerned about, or what will happen if we go to tier two. I mean, in the early days, what happens if we do a lockdown? What should I do about coming to the office? Is the canteen open? So every day, Phil, our communication would go out absolutely on point. It would answer almost every single question that was going into OD the day before. 
And you'd feel this organisational exhaling where people would just sort of go, the one thing that I'm looking forward to every day is even if the Prime Minister at 10 o'clock had said, everyone's moving into Tier 3 tomorrow morning, we had a text message going out to everybody at quarter past 10 saying, right, this is what's happening tomorrow. And then tomorrow's email will tell you about all the specific details. And that clarity of communication and the reliability of that communication, the consistency of that communication, Phil, was really settling for people at a time, as we know, when their brains would be running away with them, right? Yeah. Chimps running away. Oh, my God. What next? What this? What about COVID? What about mum? What about dad? It's like we can create some certainty in the uncertainty. Be calm. It's going to be okay. We've got this. Through that, I think we've really been in a really, really good position that people know what to expect from us. And in return, in that psychological contract, people have given us back that goodwill. Yeah, and what's really coming out, Phil, is how proactive you've been. And it's the drive to be proactive is the care and welfare of your staff. So again, that's that congruence, which is fantastic to see. And there was no doubt of that before coming on the call. But can I dig a little bit deeper in terms of COVID for yourself? Because obviously we don't talk about you as an individual, as a human being yourself. You know, you're an MD, but you're also a human being. How have you been during 2020 and experiencing COVID? It's funny, I was joking with somebody on a call yesterday, Phil, that if anyone says at a deep level, how have you been through COVID? It's like, how long have you got? This is the insight in all of this, Phil. People see you as some CEO and they go, oh, yeah, you know, what have you got to worry about? And you go, well, I've got my mum, 75, who lives 200 miles away with heart failure, who lives on her own, who's frightened to death about catching COVID. I've got a son in London who was on a university placement year, now locked in a flat in Tooting. I've got my daughter who's lost everything because her events business has collapsed as a result of nobody having events. Suddenly now I've then got a company which is in the early days, you know, in an immediate sense of crisis where you've got to be working on millions and millions of different things that are going on, getting people, getting their technology, understanding rotors, getting people in, out, safety, building security, supply chain, all this stuff. And so I guess the emotional load has been huge. It's been really, really heavy. And this is where I think, thankfully, I've got enough awareness to understand emotional load, to understand that my emotional rucksack has got stuff piling in it. I'm worried about mum. I'm worried about my son. I'm worried about my people. I'm doing insanely long hours. And certainly in the first month of COVID, I was doing 16 hours a day at my laptop at home. It was exhausting. It was really tough. I want to put that in context because that's what I'm paid to do ultimately, Phil. I'm the leader of the business and you've got to keep that context. But this is really just to answer your question. So the days were long, they were tiring. It was psychologically very demanding, emotionally demanding, physically demanding. And so at that particular point, I have to implement what I call my desk policy, diet, exercise, sleep and kindness to self. Do three of those four and do them well. Diet, exercise, sleep and kindness. So I rode my bike regularly. I made sure I was riding my bike to have that decompression, that thinking time. I was going to bed earlier, just making sure I've got good sleep intensity. And being kind to self just is about give yourself a break. Understand you've got all of this going on and that you're not some superhuman, Phil. And you, like everybody else, are going to have days when you've got low energy and you feel like there's no end to it. But remember, that's okay, and that you've got other people around you. You've got fantastic people running the business. And it's okay to have a day when you don't have back-to-back meetings and you say to people around you, look, Friday, I'm not doing meetings because I just need a bit of time to catch up, get myself back to where I need to be. So it's been really, really challenging. And one thing that I guess is a really outstanding memory for me was that 
I had everybody on our company on a Teams call. I was explaining to people, I think it's really, really important in these moments that you ensure that you're not just talking about happy, clappy and things, but you're talking about the reality of the situation. And I briefed everybody probably about May time, look, I'm seriously concerned of what this is going to do to our company. There's a massive change in working practice. We've got Brexit on the horizon. We've got massive economic damage. This could materially change demand for our company. And it might mean we're going to have to make some changes in our company at the half year point. And I want to be honest with people to say that. Towards the end of that call, I got a bit choked up, Phil. I got a bit choked up because I care about our people so much. And you've got to think about beyond this. I could also, I knew what was going on in the conversations in the background of our own people. I knew that I had people at work here whose husbands and wives were furloughed or had lost their jobs and they were struggling financially. And I just felt the emotional weight of that. And I had to take a moment to compose myself. And I got to the end, I came off the call and I had a hundred emails within an hour, Phil. A hundred emails within one hour. And those emails all said, we could see what this meant to you. We know what we mean to you. And we know you've got this. And God, I burst into tears. It was, it really was powerful. And that made me realize in that moment that, you know what, we're all together in this. We're all together. And when people can turn around, even in the most dire of times, and care for you as the leader, then I felt very lucky and very grateful in that moment. What a powerful story that is, Phil. And what tends to happen again with that emotional honesty from a leader is that people will roll their sleeves up and do even more because they want to make it work. They don't want the ship, never mind to sink, but don't want people to go off overboard. And I've got no doubt that that paid dividends in terms of that brutal, open, but transparent leadership. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that. I can see you get emotional again during that in terms of that, because it's a powerful story. No, it is. And cultures are based upon stories, Phil, aren't they? And part of the job here is you've got to become good at, I guess, telling stories. But I think when you can actually also show people, you know what, this is hitting me, then people begin to realise that you're only human too, and you're not some sort of super robotic leader that's just sort of going through the motions, that actually when you can show people, you know what, yeah, this matters to me, you matter to me. And even there, bringing it back was creating that same emotion in me in that moment. And I think once you get comfortable with that, because some people are not comfortable with that, then I think that will be a breakthrough moment for you. It's just showing vulnerability. It's not about breaking down. It's just saying, look, guys, I'm just like you. I just happen to have a much deeper responsibility. But actually, I hold very, very seriously, feel the responsibility for the livelihoods of everybody that works here and their families. And I also hold the responsibility for over 700 pensioners that have worked at Brother sometime in the last 50 years yeah. that are drawing their pension from our pension fund. I owe it to them to make this a sustainable company. And when you talk in that overarching terms of sustainability over generations so that your kids can come and work here, that's what we're building, then we can only really see the last few months as a bump in the road. Amazing. And no doubt, mate, it'll pay back in shovel loads. And I don't mean that in terms of success and money for the business, but in terms of that staff engagement, that extra bit of effort and support we need when we need it most, because we've got a few months to go. Phil, I'm conscious of time and I know you're a busy guy and must be doing one of those three bits after this call in terms of working out of the business, in the business, on the business. Just got a quick fire question round, if that's all right, just to wrap okay. it up, see if we can fly through this. Only a few questions. So who's your sporting hero? Oh, gosh, that's a, a really good one. Graham Obrey. Oh, nice, like that. Non-sporting hero. Non-sporting hero, I would say Teddy Pendergrass. 
Oh, I'll check you out. I like it. Going back to your social media, seeing you on your piano last week looked fantastic, by the way. It looked amazing. Same way. <laughs> yeah, it looked amazing. Your one big personal goal for 2021. Oh, gosh, big personal goal. I'm going to try and make sure I get 10,000 miles done on the bike. Oh, brilliant. That's an amazing goal. That's a good stretch goal. What's your average per year? About eight, but I just need to up it a bit. I'm trying to get rid of some of that COVID timber, Phil. So um, I might have to join you on that challenge. Maybe we can push each other. A few more miles. Yeah. Uh, first thing you're going to do when COVID is under control? Pub crawl with lad. <laughs> Brilliant. And your top three tips for being an effective leader? Top three tips would probably just be know yourself, read a lot and listen a lot. Brilliant. And all of those three elements are everything we've talked about during the last 45 to 50 minutes. Well, Phil, amazing. Really, really appreciate your time today. Really, really insightful. Thank you very much for your candor and sharing your stories with us. I'm sure undoubtedly it'll resonate with a lot of our listeners that are tuning in for all things human performance. Um, thanks very much for your time. I wish you and everybody the very, very best of brother for 2021 and beyond. And I've got no doubt you'll go from strength to strength. Thank you very much, Phil. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.